uh, I really love Jeremy, and I love all of you guys. This is a great church, and Jesus is doing wonderful things here, and it's a real privilege to be able to be able to come back as often I do. It took me all of 90 seconds to drive here. I timed myself this morning. And uh, I'm so appreciative of Jeremy and the freedom he feels with me because I've told him, look, if you got an emergency, you need someone to preach at the last minute. Just, And I think he had someone else arranged and that fell through and he called and I'm glad he's getting to go to spring training. My oldest son and my son-in-law and several of their friends, they're going to spring training for a week on Wednesday and uh, and I watched the Giants game last night. Anyone see that? Did it end up 18 to 3? Because I turned it off after that. <laughs> uh, for those, I think probably all of you know me. Uh, I pastored the Walnut Creek Friends Church for 20 years. I still serve there as a teaching elder, as a volunteer. I'm the director of Forgiveness Ministries. My voice is going to be a little like Rod Stewart, I think. I'm going to preach in the low level today. Because when I go high, it just kind of disappears. I was at Bass. Anyone go to Bass Convention down in Castro Valley this year? Uh, church leaders training? You did. You were there. How was it? Good. Have you gone a lot of times? Many times. Me too. I've been speaking there for 15 years and went there for many years before that. So that's why my voice is kind of gone. I was on the radio again last night, every Saturday night on KFAX Radio. You might not know that at 6 o'clock, Focus on Forgiveness, 1100 a.m., live at 6.30, so people can call in. You could call in and ask me really hard questions, because that would be fun. And um, next week is my anniversary, 34 years with Becky. She says hi. Thank you. I'm going to prison again in May as a volunteer, as a guest, as a visitor. Soledad State Prison, every, t- every weekend I go, I get to speak to six or 700 men about forgiveness. It's a great, great opportunity. And next Monday, I'm actually speaking and training, I'm told, 100 or more Contra Costa County Jail chaplain volunteers. So they're gonna get to hear more about biblical forgiveness too. And I know Jeremy always thinks that when I come here, I'm going to talk about forgiveness. And, and I'm, actually, I am going to knit that in again today. Because, I mean, how can you talk about the gospel and life without talking about forgiveness? I mean, real life has sin in it. And forgiveness is God's solution to this problem he calls sin. We need to know how to fully receive it, how to uh, effectively forgive others so our anger is gone and we actually love them with God's love. We need to know how to go to other people and ask them to forgive us, not for our sake, but for their sake, and to do it sincerely. We need to to know how to resolve our anger towards God, and what I talk about this morning is going to impact that. We need to know how to overcome self-condemnation. We need to know how to restore broken relationships. That's what our ministry works on. And there are some brochures that I left out on the table out there. The next seminar in this area is at my church, the Walnut Creek Friends Church, on April 11th and 12th, Friday night and all day Saturday. So if you want to come, you can come to that. And some of you have, and many of you have been through our small group study, and just keep going. You'll never lose or fail moving more deeply into forgiveness. Amen? I mean, that is the doorway into healing and reconciliation in life. But what I want to talk about and focus on today, though a part of life and forgiveness, 
um, is very focused. I want to talk about answering a question that um, probably all of you have asked and maybe even asked many times and maybe even have asked in bitterness. Uh, the question is this, where were you, God, when I was suffering? Ever asked God that question? Ever done it with clenched teeth and clenched fists? And I mean, there are a lot of people who don't come to church and don't want to have anything to do with God because something horrible and terrible happened, into their li happened in their lives, whether when they were children or more recent as adults, and the pain was excruciating, and they cried out to God, and they asked for deliverance, and they asked for freedom, they asked for healing, they asked for protection, they asked that this would please, please, please come to an end right now, and it didn't. And it kept going, and it kept going, and it kept going. And we all, it's just human nature. And it's, it's not a bad thing. We should be asking, why is this happening? Is there anything I can do to stop this? And I, I, I really want to say it this way. Where the hell is God right now? How come he's not rescuing me? Where are the promises? Where are the faithfulness? All these things we sing about. Why isn't God setting me free and healing me and protecting me from this violent person or this violent situation? Where is God when it hurts? Have I got your attention? You know, everyone asks it because we live in a horribly pain-filled world. Amen? This is a world filled and saturated by sin. And you've heard me say before, sin can only do three things in your lives, in your relationships, in your families. Steal, kill, destroy. And it is violent. Sin is violent. I often don't hear people use the violent word, the V word, connecting it to sin. Sin isn't just bad or wrong or evil or unrighteous. It's not even just destructive. It is violently destructive. It will tear you to pieces. And it doesn't care how it has the opportunity to do it, whether it's through your own sin or somebody else's sin. It will shred you, it will chew you up, and it won't even spit you out. It will just keep destroying you until there is nothing left. And that's why we need a Savior. We need a God who loves us and is gracious and merciful, who comes into this world and who suffers in our places and dies for us so He can set us free and deliver us out of this world. But we're still in the world right now, aren't we? And we were born into this world, and so we've gone through hell. And maybe some of you are going through a kind of hell even right now. And we cry out. Our hearts are crying out for a Savior, for a deliverer. Where are you when we're hurting? How come you didn't show up? You know, the Bible has a lot of those stories in it. And I want to look at one of those stories this morning. John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is a rather extended story about two sisters in particular who were suffering terribly because of the death of their brother, Lazarus. Now, as soon as I say that, if you're familiar with the Bible and maybe familiar with this story, you know that this story is about Jesus coming and raising a dead man who's been dead for four days to life. And usually it's that part of the story that gets attention in this scenario. That Jesus is the Son of God and it's proven by the wonderful miracles and signs that he did. Not the least of which is that he raised many people from the dead. 
in the sight of others. And Lazarus is one of those stories. But, but, this is a lengthy story. It takes up 44 or more verses. And whenever the Bible tells a long story like that, it means it's important and it means that the details in the story are important. And we're not going to try and read it all because I'm not going to preach on everything that could be drawn out of this story. Matter of fact, I'm not even going to focus on the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, really. To me, that, that's not the most important thing. To me, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is not the most important part of this story. It's something else. And it's something that I believe answers the question, where is God when we're hurting, when we're suffering, when we don't see Him show up, when we want Him to, the way we want Him to do? Where is God when we're hurting and when we're suffering? So I'm going to start by reading the beginning of the story and then I'll just kind of tell the narrative as we go through. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this, now listen to what he says here, this sickness is not to death. It is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So here's the backdrop to this painting. Jesus has this wonderful relationship with two women and their brother, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He's apparently spent a lot of time with them. They have supported Jesus and the disciples. They've become close friends, almost like family, if not like family. And so when Lazarus gets sick, and you've got to remember, and this is a, <laughs> anytime you're reading in, in the Bible, you're reading a third world country, what we would... Matter of fact, probably even worse than a lot of third world countries. They didn't have drugs and medicines and doctors and clean water and bandages and sterile things like we had. When people got sick, that, was, that could be the end. You know, the flu could kill you. A cold could kill you. Pneumonia, I mean, that kind of stuff. An infection, a cut and an infection. You might die from that. Your children could die from that. Lazarus doesn't tell us what Lazarus had, but Lazarus was seriously sick. Sick enough that the sisters said, we need to get Jesus here as soon as possible. Because they're all suffering and they're afraid. Lazarus may die. And so the girls get one of their servants and send the servant out to find Jesus. He's out. He's an itinerant preacher preaching somewhere. He's got to track him down. He finds Jesus and says to Jesus, Lord, Lazarus, the one whom you love is sick and the girls want you to come to, to heal him. And Jesus, Now listen to what Jesus says because the servant is listening to this. And, and Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God. If you were the servant, what would you have felt and thought at that point? Great! This is good news. Lazarus isn't going to die. I'm going to run back to my masters, the girls, and tell them Lazarus is not going to die because Jesus said the sickness is not unto death. And so he makes haste and he raced back to the house. And by the time frame in this story, you know what we find out? When he got there, Lazarus is already dead. 
Man, what happened to his faith? Jesus said the sickness is not unto death. He gets back there and if he wasn't already dead, it happened within hours maybe. That might have even been worse if Lazarus was still alive, got back and told the girls, don't worry, Jesus said he's not going to die. It's not unto death. And then he dies. And Jesus doesn't show up right away. He doesn't show up for a couple more days. So now this reality has to sink in. Our brother was sick and dying. We cried out to the Lord Jesus, whom we believe to be God, whom we've seen do miracles and heal other people. Maybe they'd even seen him. No, I don't think they'd seen him raise anyone else from the dead. They would have maybe understood what was coming. And they would have said, where was Jesus? Why didn't he come? Does Jesus really know what's going on? Does Jesus love us? Does Jesus care? Maybe he couldn't do anything in this case. Why didn't he come? Where was God when we needed him? And the pain is not over because their brother just died and so now they're doing funeral preparations and Jewish funerals in these days lasted for days, not, not hours. They went on for days and people would come and they would weep and they would cry and sometimes rich people, and I don't believe the girls did this, but sometimes rich people would hire professional mourners to come to kind of show how much the family was hurting, but also kind of in pride maybe exalt their position in the community. Look how, people, how many people come and mourn for this person when they die. I don't think Mary and Martha did that, but they were good at having funerals and sad funerals where there was a lot of weeping and crying and beating of the chest and wailing and throwing dust in the air and who knows what else they were doing. Fasting and, and things like that. And as the story goes on, Jesus then says to the disciples, okay, let's go back. I need to, Lazarus fell asleep and uh, I need to go wake him up. And the disciples go, well, if he fell asleep, he's going to wake up on his own. And by the way, Jesus, they were just trying to stone you back there. And Jesus says, hey, you need to follow my directions. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And as long as you have the light, you can work by the light of the day. So let's go. And by the way, Lazarus isn't asleep, he's dead. Now, imagine what the disciples must have thought at that point. He's dead. Oh, we heard you say this isn't unto death. Lazarus is dead. They all knew Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He's dead. Ah, oh, we're kind of confused here. Matter of fact, they're so confused at the, at the end. There's one line in here where Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, okay, let's go back to Judea and die with Jesus. Boy, that's a statement of faith, huh? I mean, these people everywhere had just about lost it over this situation. And Jesus starts back. And let's see where I want to pick it up here. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. It was a big funeral. 
Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming and went out, and she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Just on the side, you know, Mary and Martha are in another story in the Bible. Do you remember that story? Where Martha is working in the kitchen real hard, slaving and getting everything ready and to being a host to all the people who were listening to Jesus. And what was Mary doing? Sitting at Jesus' feet. And we all applaud Mary because Jesus said, hey, she's doing the right thing. Martha, you need to relax and let up. Only one thing's necessary. Martha's got it. So, and Martha looks like the, the, the story turns here. Now Martha is showing more faith and Mary is showing something else. So Martha runs out to meet Jesus because he's still on the outskirts of the town. Now listen to what Martha says to Jesus. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's another way of saying that? Where were you when we needed you? Where were you when he was dying? Because if you would have been here when he was dying, he wouldn't have died. You would have done something. You would have healed him. I know you have the power to do that. I've seen you do that. Where were you? Do you don't you love us? Don't you care? Weren't you paying attention? Were you too busy? Were other people more important? Am I reading too much into this? Or can you feel the truth in the story here? Where were you, Jesus? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now Martha doesn't stop there. She's hopeful, but she's not sure what to expect. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Not entirely sure what she was thinking when she says that, because a little farther down, she actually kind of hinders Jesus from raising Lazarus from the dead. So... Not sure where her faith is. Is she's vacillating that fast? Because that's what happens when we're suffering, right? When you're in a lot of pain, you're hopeful one minute and then discouraged and depressed the next and you kind of go back and forth and you wrestle and you don't know what's going to happen. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, not wanting to be too hopeful, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's true for every human being. And Jesus said to her, Jesus is always taking advantage of situations to get people to focus on him. Other religious leaders always point outward or upward or over there or later. Jesus never said go over there or believe in that or follow that or do something later. Jesus always simply said what? Look at me. Follow me. Watch me. Feel me. Obey me. Why? Well, why? He says, she's thinking the resurrection is only a time that takes place on the judgment day. And Jesus says, nah, you're not thinking of this right. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, I know what you're thinking, the same thing they were thinking, the same thing I would think, and I, am, uh, and, and I had to change my definition of death to understand what Jesus is saying here. He who believes in me shall live and never die. 
gosh, it's been 2,000 years of people believing in Jesus. And there's no one over 150. People are dying. Christians are dying all the time. We're going to die someday unless Jesus comes back. What did he mean by you're never going to die? When Jesus says he is the life, what he means is, I am the fullness of everything the way God wants things to be. And I can give that fullness to anyone and everyone who believes in me. So if you believe in me, Jesus is saying, I can work in your life in such a way that ultimately you will be where and how God wants you to be. And God is a God of life, not a God of death. You will have everything that you need, want, and desire. In the end, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all the good that God has in store for those who love Him. I am the door, Jesus said. I am the way. I make it happen. I am the life. I am the truth. Look at me. Watch me. Follow me. Come to me. Have a relationship with me. This is all about Jesus, folks. Not just what he can do, but about him personally. And, Jesus, and she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes in the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister. So she has this interaction with Jesus, then she runs back to the house. Mary's still sitting there. What is Mary doing in the house? Crying with other people who are crying. Depressed. I'm guessing even angry at God. She's not going out to meet Jesus. Watch what happens next. Mary said, um, or Martha said to her, uh, the Master is here and he wants to see you. And when she heard this, she got up quickly and was coming to Jesus. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with Mary in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So she's weeping in the house, now they're going to go to the tomb, and they're all just going to cry together and mourn. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him exactly what Martha said, at least the first half of what Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, period. She didn't say, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Can you feel her pain? Can you feel her disappointment? Can you feel her anger? Where were you, Jesus, when we called? We not only called, we not only got to you in time, you told our servant my brother wasn't going to die and he's dead and been buried in a tomb for four days. Where were you? And she doesn't, that's it. She's done, period. She's just sad, depressed, and angry. Now watch this next verse. Verse 33, and this is the one that I wanted to have put up here. Because this verse, to me, is maybe the most important verse in the whole story. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And Jesus said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, 
Come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, actually I know of one other verse in the Bible in the book of Psalms that only has two words, but here it is. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, watch this, so the Jews who are watching Jesus weeping said, look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus. Okay. So you've got to read. You, you know, sometimes when you read the Bible, it gives us the skeleton, and we've got to put real life into this skeleton and flesh it out. The Jews are watching Mary interact with Jesus. They're hearing her say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're watching something happen to Jesus emotionally, and he starts to cry and break down and weep, and they go... Some translations say this, not just look. They go, behold. They go, wow, look at this. Look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus. Now, they misinterpret. First of all, we need to realize this. That tells me Jesus did not just have a tear in his eye. You don't look at someone who's pushing back a few tears and maybe sniffling a little and go, wow, look at how much he loved Lazarus. He was weeping. He was bawling. He was... I don't know if you've ever done this. I have many times in my life. I, sometimes weeping is like throwing up where your gut wrenches. The pain is so bad that you can't stand it. and all your, It's like your body is trying to just get it out. And it doesn't... You don't get the pain out by weeping that way. But your body and your mind, your soul cannot do anything else but just be twisted in agony. And, and you're not just... You just don't have tears on your face. You have spit and slobber on your face and on your chest. And it's just, I believe that's how Jesus was weeping. Because if I see a person, a man or a woman weeping like that, I go, whoa, look at all the emotion there. That is really important. Whatever that person's crying over is really important to that weeping person. That's what Jesus was doing. And, but they misinterpreted why he was weeping. They thought he was weeping because Lazarus was dead. Now I'll ask you a question. If you were Jesus or had the power to raise people from the dead and you had deliberately come to raise someone from the dead because that's why Jesus didn't come by the way. When you read the whole story, the reason why Jesus didn't come when the girls asked him to come is he wanted to let Lazarus die because he didn't want to heal Lazarus. He wanted to raise him from the dead. And you can't raise someone from the dead until he's first dead. So the girls said, please love us, show your love for us and heal our brother of his sickness. Jesus is thinking, no, I'm going to do something better than that. I'm going to show you how much I love you by coming and raising your brother from the dead. And everyone's going to see that. And this is just shortly before his crucifixion. This is one of the final great miracles in the story. So Jesus deliberately, he doesn't cause Lazarus' death. He just doesn't do anything to stop it because he wants to do something special. Now, if you could raise someone from the dead, would you be crying for him when you got to the cemetery? Think about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be crying for anyone I'm about to raise from the dead. Matter of fact, if I would put my place in Je this story in Jesus' shoes, I would have done this all different. Okay, you let, Jesus, you let Lazarus die. 
Now you come, you know the girls are going to be sad. You know they're even going to be maybe angry at you. And so I would send two of the disciples ahead of me. I'd say, we're going to walk. You two are going to run. I want you to get to Mary and Martha's house right away. I want you to tell them as soon as you see them, because this is what us men are really good at, stop crying. <laughs> right, ladies? <laughs> we men, that's, that's how we think we can fix something. If I see you're crying, stop crying. Stop Stop crying. Please stop crying. <laughs> stop crying because we are so intent on stopping someone's pain as fast as possible. So I, if, if I were Jesus, send the disciples, tell the girls, don't, don't even tell anyone else, just whisper in their ears, I'm going to be there in a day or so and I'm going to raise your brother back to life so you can stop crying right now. Question, why didn't Jesus do that? This is an important question. This will have huge impact on your life if you really absorb it. Why didn't Jesus stop them from crying? Is it possible that stopping someone's pain isn't the most valuable or important thing that you can do in their life? that maybe something else is more important? Maybe what Jesus did is more important than what Steve Deal would have done in that situation? That maybe Jesus understood ministry to the human heart better than I understood ministry to the human heart at that time? I would think that's probably true. So verse 33 again, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her, before I finish that, you know, theologians examine this verse and many theologians say, well, Jesus was weeping because he was weeping over their unbelief. Ever heard that? Would God weep over people's unbelief? Yeah, sure. He did that on, on the, when he was carrying the cross, weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, does Some theologians say Jesus was weeping because... He didn't like sin in the world and so he's just weeping over the reality of sin and physical death in the world. Does God weep over that? Yeah, I believe that. But that's not what's said in the story. What's said in the story is when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Well, what a nice way, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. You know what that's saying is Jesus could feel their pain. Whose pain? Um, Mary, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He could feel their pain. And because they were feeling such intense pain that caused them to weep like they were throwing up, Jesus was entering into their world emotionally and it so overtook him and overwhelmed him that he joined them in their weeping. Not just superficially, but at the core of his being, he was feeling their pain. And it devastated him. He wasn't crying over Lazarus. He wasn't crying for Lazarus. He was crying with Mary and Martha and all the other people at the cemetery. Does that make sense? He was empathizing with them. 
And he did it not just secretly with a straight face. He just let it out. So that the Jews who looked at him and said, wow, look at how much he loved Lazarus. But he wasn't crying for Lazarus. He was crying with the hurting people. Now, the rest of the story, of course, as he goes to the cemetery, tells them to roll away the stone. He prays to the Father. Thank you, Father. You always hear me, but I say this so that those standing here will know that you sent me. And then he shouts, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. And, and we all applaud. Because and, and, all what happened to all the weeping now when Lazarus comes forth? It evaporates. It is gone. Jesus actually then, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of Lazarus, removes all their cause for weeping. He could have done that by telling them in advance he was going to do that. He doesn't tell them in advance. Instead, now listen how I say this, it is more important to God that He empathize with you than simply to fix your problem. And what amazes me about this story is even when God is going to fix your problem and take away your suffering in five minutes, if you really understood the heart of God and you could see His face, you'd see Him crying with you first. We want the solution first. God says, you don't understand your heart, nor me, nor our relationship. What you need from me first and foremost are my tears. You need my tears. You, sorry, here it comes. You need to know that I love you so much that when I see you hurting, I can't stop crying myself. You ask, where were you, God, when I was suffering? As if I was far away, as if I didn't care. I do care, I do love you, but you don't understand the nature of the world that I've created where I have to let sin run its course. And when sin hits you and slaps you in the face and rapes you and pulls your family apart and destroys you, there's a limit on what I can do right here, right now. Because if I change the world to stop all your pain right now, that means I have to change the world to stop your pain and 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 your pain. And your pain, and your pain. It means I have to change the structure of the whole world right here, right now. What you want me to do is build the whole world right around you right now and I can't do that. Because I want more people to come to believe in me so I can save them. So I have to leave you here in this broken world. Not alone. See, you think I left you. You think I don't care. You think I don't love you. Where were you when my father was abusing me when I was five years old and I said, please, someone save me from my daddy? Man, if Jesus sat down with you, the Holy Spirit, the Father, and you looked at him and, and asked that question, you would just see him burst into tears and say, I was right in that room with you as, and I felt it as if your dad was doing it to me. Because God is deeply moved and troubled in spirit when he sees the ones he loves suffering. God never takes pain pills. Sin is entirely violently destructive. And the one person in the universe who feels it the most is not you. It's God. 
God feels the reality of sin more acutely, more intensely. You, you only feel the sin in your world surrounding your life. God feels the reality of sin in the whole world around everyone's life and not just everyone's life who's alive right now. It's everyone's life from Adam and Eve all the way to the last person who's made. You only start to feel the pain when the sin happens to you. When does God start to feel the pain? Before the foundation of the world, when He saw it coming. God has been suffering for us and with us before we even start suffering. God suffers with us. He suffers because of us. He suffers um, before us. God is... God is... God is close. God is nearby. And you need to know that when you're suffering, He is not far away. He is close with you. And He agonizes. He feels the twisted agony in the core in His gut that you feel. And the only reason... Now, you don't know how many times God has spared you and saved you from a terrible pain. But I do want you to know this that if bad things happen to you, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because the way the system, the world that He's created, has to work right now. The way the world is, the way He's created it right now, it prevents Him from doing what you want Him to do right now. Oh yeah, He has the power to do it, but if He did what you wanted Him to do, then Jesus would have to come back right now and the whole thing changes. We go to the judgment day now. And God is not wishing for any to perish, but is waiting for all to come to repentance. So He says, you're going to have to wait here a little longer and share Jesus with as many people and let them know that I love them, I care for them, I died for them, I suffered. I not only suffered with them 2,000 years ago, but I am still suffering with everyone right now. You are not alone. You never have been alone. Even before you knew God, He was with you, crying with you. So what's the application of this? Well, it starts by faith. When you find yourself in pain or in anger or in depression and you're saying, where are you, God? Or where were you, God? By faith, you need to believe He's with me right now. He's always been with me, even when I rejected Him, even when I didn't know Him, even when I was a little boy or a little girl. He's always been with me. And He has always been feeling what I feel. And when I cry, He cries with me. And then start to talk to Him about that. Learn to have, watch this phrase I use, learn to have emotional intercourse with your Heavenly Father where the two become one. You're suffering. He's suffering. Come together in your relationship with God. Talk with Him about that. Cry with God knowing that He's crying with you. And also know this. The day is coming when He will roll away the stone. And He will shout forth a command. And the reason for your pain will be done away with. He will heal you. 
He will restore you. He will set you in a strong place. He will surround us with people who love us. He will put us in a world where there is no sin. Which means, now, you might know this verse in, in, in a revelation. He says, when the new Jerusalem, which is the church, comes down on the new earth and all these wonderful things are happening. I got goosebumps saying this. God says, and there will be no more death and no more crying for the first things have passed away. New things have come. Your salvation is coming. Your healing will happen. The fullness of your heart's desire will happen. But for now, you might have to wait a little longer. But in your waiting, remember, Jesus is with you. And when you're crying, He's crying with you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for being such a loving God who not only does the right thing for us and around us, but a God who is an emotional being. We are emotional beings, Lord, because you made us in your image. Thank you for the gift of feeling the reality of our world. And thank you for not hiding yourself from the pain that we feel and we've endured. Thank you for feeling it more deeply than we do. Thank you for never taking a pain pill so that you can be quick and ready to minister to our broken hearts. And Lord, I know that there are a lot of broken hearts in this room. In some ways, every one of us has a broken heart. Help us to know, Lord, that you are crying with us. Help us to know that you love us. Help us to know you've always been with us. Help us to know and be absolutely confident that you care. And help us to know and be assured that the best is yet to come. That there is healing. That there is resurrection. That there is life. And it's in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.